Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to have Diana Davison as a guest today. She is a legal researcher for Newberger and Partners in Toronto, an advocate for the falsely accused and wrongfully convicted. Diana, thank you so much for talking to me. Well, I was really happy to get your, um, your email asking me to, to chat because I've done a, a video on the situation we're going to be discussing, and I think it's a really important subject. So before we go into the work you're doing these days, I wanted to talk a bit about the allegations against Marilyn Manson, as expected. I know my viewers would love to hear your thoughts on that. So do you think any of the women are telling the truth? Well, one of the things with allegations that's important is we can't talk about how many people commit sexual assault when you're talking about a specific allegation. And this is uh, you know, incredibly important when you're dealing with criminal allegations, that every criminal case should never be approached in terms of hashtag believing anyone or thinking about how many real victims there are who never get justice. Because when you go to a criminal um, trial, there's a person who be put in jail. So they should only be judged based on the actual circumstances and the actual evidence in their particular case. So this is something that um, I think gets really washed over on social media, where it's more an activist space. And they're talking about, you know, we need to have more attention on a subject. Well, you can't use individuals and sacrifice an individual's life to gain attention on a subject because it happens to be a social problem. You know what I mean? So there's some things that are true and they're, they're a little bit untrue. In the past, um, celebrities and people with positions of power because they're maybe very affluent, you know, they're uh, in a, a high social uh, position in our social hierarchy, they can get away with a lot of things. But there's also a reason that people were less believable when they were accusing somebody who was famous. And that's because people who are famous are historically targets for false allegations, right? So I worked in the film industry and some of the people I worked with were singers. And there's a thing about them um, that makes them targets for crazy people. And also there's a thing about them that causes people to become um, distorted in their worldview when they, when they fall in love with the person. And then later on, they're thinking, what the hell would they might think, they should think, what the hell was going on with me and my brain that I was so you know, attracted to them and I was willing to do anything to get with them you know, what was wrong with me, we would have asked that in the past. Now we ask what was wrong with them that made me want them so bad that I would do these things. Yeah, I guess that's especially relevant when we're talking about grooming, which is one of those very obscure terms. Well, let's go straight to the heart of the problem with Evan Rachel Wood's allegations, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I get how people can do things and then feel really bad about them later and then feel that victimhood that she's expressing. And, you know, leave aside the fact that she's an actual actor. So the fact that she can actually say these things and be believable means nothing. It just means she's a good actor, right? So, you know, but that's unfair to her. Let's, let's look at it just neutrally for a moment because this is what courts would actually do is try to come in neutrally. And she said that she was groomed. 
But the problem is there are multiple interviews with her where she says she hopped on a tour bus because she was going to take off with Marilyn Manson. And she told her parents, I might come back, I might not. Right. So how is that grooming? How do, how do you mesh those two things where she decided that she was going to get on a tour bus for a particular person and she was going to throw herself into chaos? That is actually the opposite of grooming. That is recklessness. And before I, you know, and I want to hear your, your feedback on this as well. The thing that the feminist movement did <laughs> was they made it okay for women to be reckless. They made it okay for women to do things that they would otherwise be ostracized for. And now, you know, and we're advancing this more and more. Let's, let's let women express themselves. Let women do these crazy things. Let's let them take risks. And Camille Paglia, who's a, an amazing, you know, second wave feminist. I can't even keep track of whatever waves we're on. But, you know, she said, we fought for the right for women to take risks. And what comes with the risk is responsibility. And I am not okay with Rachel Evan Woods saying that she was groomed, when in fact, what we know from her own mouth is she got on a tour bus and decided to chase a man. Yeah. All right, you go. <laughs> I just like to play the devil's advocate for a little bit. So whatever Rachel Wood would say to you, I think, is that at that point, she'd already been brainwashed. And again, brainwashing is just one of those very, very vague terms you know it can mean so many different things well she's got a bit of a problem though in, in that she left him twice and she went back to him again so she was in a, a different place and she also when she did finally leave him and never go back she went to a boyfriend she had prior to him so she had a support person who she ended up reuniting with yeah. right I guess like what this comes down to is that she was an adult you know, she might have been very young, much younger than he was, but at the end of the day, we have an age of constant for a reason. It is a very arbitrary age, but we still have it. So for her to talk as though she'd been a little child with no agency of her own and no legal responsibility whatsoever is just absurd. Well, she has a, a fairly, you know, documented, because she said it in front of Congress or whatever, like whatever you call it down in the States, um, that she said, well, I was, uh, maybe I was a smart uh, or mature 18 year old, but I was still an 18 year old, right? But, but that's the reality is that I remember being 18, barely, <laughs> but I still do remember it. And you think you're the smartest person in the universe and you think all these old people need to learn from you, right? So you're, she's making decisions, but this is the point. She's making decisions, actual decisions. And they're ones that she regrets because she's not 50 right? She's, she's only 18. But everything, by the time you get to 50, we make a lot of mistakes. And I'm saying 50 because I'm 50 now. Um, but you make a lot of mistakes on that pathway. And every mistake you make, no matter how bad it turns for you, it ends up making you the person you are today. Your obligation is to learn from your mistakes. Exactly. And, and it's just so tragic that feminism has gone in this opposite direction instead of encouraging women to own their mistakes and to learn from their mistakes, which would be empowering, according to my definition. They're telling them that they're not required to hold any responsibility whatsoever. And, and how, how is that an empowering message? I just can't get my head around it. Well, another aspect I want to bring up front too, because there's a lot of stuff that we're saying up front that we kind of have to unpack a little bit later. 
But another thing that, that I think we need to address is why is Marilyn Manson supposed to be perfect? Because like we're, we're acting like he has no emotional disturbances of his own and that he's not allowed to actually be a human being who might be going through a problem phase. So there is one thing that you said that I was like, well, okay, I, I know where you're coming from, but, um, but that's not the, the proper way to go. Like you had said in, in your big viral video about having dated him before, that why is it that he dated some women and didn't assault them, and then he dated other women and he did, right? So that part, um, I know where you're coming from, but, um, but you also have to say, well, he only was with you for a weekend, whereas he might've been with other people for a longer time period. And why did he fixate on them as partners for a long-term relationship, whereas he didn't fixate on you, right? Uh, for, for that thing, he was fine just, just to, to you know, have your weekend or whatever, however long it was. And that when you commit to living with somebody, cohabitating, especially as, you know, Evan Rachel Woods did, that um, you can see a side of a person when you're cohabitating with them that nobody else sees. But on that front, we have a bit of a problem in that Rose McGowan, who's like a big, you know, she's psychotic. She's literally psychotic. And she's coming out saying, yeah, he never did anything to me, right? And, uh, you know, so, so why is that? that? That's actually a better comparison. So why is it that, um, it was a Dita von Tess? Yeah, um, that uh, she only left him because he was cheating on her and doing some drugs. And then Rose McGowan, my understanding of that is that they broke up because she was doing too many drugs. <laughs> um, people evolve over time. So their relationships at one point and another point are gonna be different. But I have a big problem where people expect uh, a performer who's, and, and this is one thing I wanna unpack as well, that the lifestyle of people in the entertainment industry is not like normal people at all. And the number of people who throw themselves at him, who are willing to have sex with him, are gonna um, change the way he responds to people, right? And with celebrities, what I found in the film industry is that it becomes a crisis because if you didn't know somebody before you got famous, it becomes difficult to trust people you met afterward because you don't know if they're really friends or if they're just attached to you because of your fame. And so they become very, very lonely. And um, they have a lot of trust issues. And I don't know why it is that anyone, given, given the performance art that, that um, Marilyn Manson is and, and is quite open about, and the darkness side of that that he's exploring, um, given that factor, you know, it's just like, oh, what did you expect dating Marilyn Manson? That's not fair to, to ask somebody. You expect them to be human, right? But, but they forget that he is human and that as a celebrity, he's meeting so many people who all they want to do is attach themselves to him for fame. And, and you know, I don't know him personally myself, but I can tell you just, you know, what, what these people experience <clears throat> when they become celebrities that um, when you live a life where you can't trust anybody you meet and don't know what any, you know, if anybody actually really likes you or if they're just there because they want a piece of that fame, um, then it, it transforms you in a way that as much as the, it seems like a, a richy rich, poor, you know, poor celebrity story or something that you can't really empathize with, um, there's, there is an actual difference in the world that celebrities live in versus everybody else. And that's why 
we have to be afraid of accusations against celebrities. Like we have to be afraid of just assuming they're true. And for an example, before I turn it back to you again to talk for a bit, look at Keanu Reeves, who has a woman who actually sued him for child support, claiming that he, um, what's the word? Um, he did some sort of a morphing himself into another body. Um, she, there's a crazy woman who claimed Keanu Reeves fathered her child by shape-shifting, that's the word, shape-shifting into a person who she believed was somebody else in order to have sex with her, because that's all Keanu Reeves is thinking about, you know? And God bless him, he actually filed a defense against that case. So this is what goes on in celebrity life. Yeah, that's very interesting what you're saying about celebrity lifestyles, and obviously all of this has to be taken into account. But I also think that the reason I have trouble taking a lot of the allegations seriously is that they are just, a lot of them are just so vague and just so petty. Like, honestly, one of the allegations that came out on the same day as ever Rachel Wood made her claims public was that he was showing this person around his house and he pointed at a room and he said, this is my rape room. And it's like, it's like that's proof and that's corroboration to Evan Richard Wood's claims. That, that, that's just so ridiculous. And what you picked up on from my video, you're absolutely right. And I never claim that my brief experience with him has much of a bearing on the experience of women who spent years with him. So I, I understand I might not have expressed that it's the best, but at the same time though, apart from Evan Rachel Wood's claims, if you look at most of the allegations, they claim that he was abusive from the first moment onwards. If you look at Esme Bianco's claims, are you familiar with those? No, you probably know that the bulk of the claims better. Like, I did a video when he was accused of, you know, by somebody other than... So, so actually, just to, to go back to the Ed and Rachel Woods thing, some people like Blair White did a video, um, and it's, of course, because it's Blair White, got a lot of circulation, and she's like, um, I believe her more because she didn't name him. And it's like... You got to be clear everyone knew who she was talking about she didn't have to name him it doesn't matter that she didn't say his name everybody knew who she was talking about there was no hiding there and so i, I don't find that it bolsters her allegation whatsoever but in terms of like there are a number of accusers um and you have to look at everyone independently uh, i was going to say something else but but i actually want to just stop for a moment because the most important thing from your video was this email that you got from Evan Rachel Wood's uh, Phoenix Rising thing, was it called? Phoenix Act. Yeah, so, so this is the problem right now that um, people realize that it's more effective to have multiple accusers. So what they do is they use these back channels and then you know there's not a single mention that I've ever seen and you can tell me because you've been following the multiple allegations more closely. I haven't seen any reference to the accusers mentioning that they were contacted and asked if they had an allegation to make prior to them coming out. That's probably the case because they've been friends for years. So a lot of them 
have pictures, they posted pictures on social media selfies of themselves with each other, like going back years, five, six years. So I don't know, my guess is that they reached out to a lot of people, but the core of that group was already very familiar with each other. So for example, Evan Rachel Wood and Esme Bianco and Ashley Waters, the personal assistant, they've known each other for years. So I, I think they are the core of this whole hysteria. But one specific, I guess there are two specific examples I wanted to give you. One is Esme Bianco. So she gave this interview to Good Morning America, which is just, it's just so, hard to watch and it actually upsets me so much just because I'm a woman who wants to be taken seriously and basically the way she tells her story she talks in the passive voice you know this was done to me and I was taken you know I that that always infuriates me when I hear a woman talk like that but basically what she says is that she went to LA to meet him for a photo shoot he flew her out to his house they were, they were shooting a music video for a song titled, I want to kill you, like they do in the movies. And he sent her an email stating that she would have to be tied up and he would have to manhandle her. And she would have to agree to all of that. And then in the interview, she describes how everything was going fine. And then on the very last day, he tied her up against her will, tied her to one of these wooden, Catholic wooden prayer, things and then uh -huh. beating her with a whip uncontrollably and that was one of their very first encounters. You want to mention the whip in the email is that the problem <laughs> well and basically she is a bdsm artist so she performed in fetish clubs many many times before both as a dominant and as a submissive it's not like she doesn't know like how, how these things work you know obviously if it really did happen the way she claims it did, that's not acceptable. You have to prepare the person exactly what's going to happen. We know that. However, my, my problem is that she went home after... No, I'm going to interrupt for a second because, you know, I, I haven't worked on films like this, but, you know, I, I did work in the film industry. And in order to get a performance out of somebody, you don't if you have an understanding of what's in your contract and what's going to happen to you they might actually surprise you and do it in a way that you're not expecting in order to get the best performance out of you and there's been a number of complaints especially with like um roman polanski or like directors who are who are infamous for creating fabulous movies and they had in their mind that the you know i in order to make this a realistic response and to help this actor to to be more believable on screen they'll do this thing. And so, you know, in the industry, it's not shocking. That, that actually isn't inappropriate at all. My like on today's standards, yes. But given the way some artists think, and I mean, like who thinks like artists anyways? We've got these feminist artists going out there and actively bleeding on camera and stuff and pulling, you know, wool out of their vagina. It like to make a point so so how is that appropriate there's like there's lots of inappropriate things that happen under the name of art <laughs> that's when you get in the film industry and you're dealing with musicians and you're doing videos and stuff this is the thing that drives me crazy is i've worked on film sets and they're not like normal jobs okay 
we might work 20, 22 hours a day to, in order to make our day and to get the footage. Then we take big breaks in between and weird shit happens. We have to film sex scenes where two people who aren't partners appear to have sex with each other in a room full of fucking strangers who are part of the film crew, right? This is not a normal job. And so to act like, um, you know, people in these industries are engaging in a job like you would do when you go to an office, it's absurd and it's outrageous. And the people who are claiming that they should be seen as a person who works in an office are liars. They know they're liars and that annoys me. I hate liars and frauds and that's why I do what I do to expose liars and frauds. And, and all of these Me Too things that are Hollywood based, a lot of these things might've happened, but the way they're describing it is a lie. And that really bothers me. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that in a moment. But so what really upsets me about the Esme Bianco story is that after this happened, she flew back to the UK and months later, she started a sexual relationship with him. So that's the way she words it. She was married at the time, by the way. So she left her husband to start a relationship with the man who beat her allegedly against her will during that photo shoot. So it's not like she was already wrapped up in this cycle of domestic abuse that apparently sucks people in and then you lose control of yourself. It, it was her willing decision to start a relationship with that person. And, and the way they present it. A relationship she didn't need because she had another partner, right? And no one questions the story whatsoever. Like, the way everyone talks about the story is that she had no role in it whatsoever. As if she, and she was in her late 20s when this happened. So it's not like she was a child. And this is actually, it makes me really angry as a woman because I just feel like I don't want to hear women talk like this. We are fighting well, for- It raises the question, what is feminism? You, you describe yourself as an anti-feminist? As I do, right? But the reality is we're feminists. The thing that's being called feminism does not actually advocate for women's agency whatsoever. They tell women, don't be ashamed of being a victim. That's not feminism. Of course, I don't want anyone to be ashamed of being a victim, but I don't want them to be proud either. I know, well, so, you know, but, but the topic is what is, what is better feminism? to tell women that they're strong, because that's supposed to be the message of feminism, yeah. right? And what's happening, and I did see a, an academic paper written on this when it comes down to certain phrases that are being pushed on our courts, as well as you know, on the, the broader community, that women go into tonic immobility when they're faced with fear. That's a claim, right? And it's something that's being presented in court. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't doubt whether she's telling the truth because she said she became, you know, becoming frozen is a real thing when you're faced with something, you know, that, that makes you afraid. But, but an extended phase of tonic immobility where you become like a chicken who has a, a line of chalk drawn in front of it and then becomes immobilized and can't do anything, you're helpless, right? <laughs> Until somebody breaks your, your, your line of vision or something like that. All these things like, I'm not a chicken. And sharks, you can stroke their belly and they, they'll float on their back and they'll not do anything. I'm not a shark either, right? Um, so we're not animals. We are actual human beings 
And women have the same functionality of brain that men do. So to be told as a woman, there was an academic paper saying, I don't think it's helpful for us right now to spread what is actually false information that women will become helpless and will go into a state of tonic immobility, unable to defend themselves. That's actually going to prevent women from defending themselves when they find themselves in bad situations because they'll have that information. And then when they're threatened, they're going to think they can't defend themselves because they're being told that, um, that, that their bodies will render them helpless. It's ridiculous. How is this helpful? This is being, this is being written and promoted by people whose industry, whose actually government-funded industry depends on their being victims in the world. They don't want to end the victimhood. They don't want to reduce the number of victims in the world. They want to promote the number of victims in the world so they can get more money from the government. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's literally happening. That's what's going on. So I want to go back to one thing you mentioned about women not necessarily lying about what happened to them, but misrepresenting real actual events. So there's this thing that used to be known as repressed memory syndrome, which you've spoken about in a few of your videos. As far as I understand, it has been discredited decades ago, but it can't, like elements of that appear in a lot of these stories in the Marilyn Manson case. Even with Esme Bianco, this interviewer in the Good Morning America interview actually asks her at one point, how long did it take you to realize this was domestic abuse. And she says, seven years after she left. And on a different occasion, she actually admits that it, it took her years of therapy to realize what it was that was happening to her. So there's, there's a thing, and I'm really glad you brought this topic up. Um, recovered memory, you know, as we know, is, is a travesty to justice as what happened in the satanic panic in the 1990s. Right. And those were children. And, right. And there's a bunch of people who were wrongfully convicted uh, under the belief that repressed memories were real. And repressed memories under that terminology is um, really, you know, looked down upon by judges in the court, but not necessarily by juries, members of the jury. Right. We've recently had a case in Canada where recovered memories were upheld by the Supreme Court. It's really devastating. But um, it's been repackaged. It's the same concept has been called something else by the same people who still advocate that repressed memories are legitimate. So what's, what's being um, promoted now, not just when I say promoted, I don't just mean in the public. I mean, it's literally being taught to our prosecutors, our police forces, and our judges is a thing called trauma-informed investigative um, process. So there's a thing called FETI, but the, the actual originator, uh, originating source is a, a psychologist named Jim Hopper down in the States who still promotes repressed memory as a legitimate thing. And uh, so that's being taught by a, a person named Lori Haskell up in Canada. And I don't mind saying these names because they're literally on record for teaching our judges and prosecutors. So you know, if they're ashamed of what they're doing, then they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be doing it, right? So <clears throat> this is all connected to repressed memory, but it's being repackaged and it's being resold by saying 
that we now have neuroscience that supports that memory during a traumatic event um, doesn't work the same. You can't encode it. And I've done a video on this, which is, might be one of the ones you watched um, uh, something about neuroscience, but, um, but it, it's devastatingly bad. And I don't know how to reverse it yet. I'm, I'm talking to lawyers right now, trying to figure out how to um, get the, the institutions who are re-educating judges to reveal what it is they're educating on so we can actually prove to them it's untested theories. But this is all repressed memory, satanic panic kind of thing. And um, the problem is, I think kind of what you were identifying too, is that the people who are spouting this, the actual complainants, actually do believe it's real. So they're not lying. They actually have become convinced by other people that what they're saying is true. And there's two different formats of this. One is, um, you know, reshaped memory <clears throat> because their own personal trauma of being embarrassed about something, um, <clears throat> you know, whatever other emotions are attached to the things that they actually agreed to do are causing them to need to rewrite their own memories so that they can be better off with it um, when, when their own memories resurface in their mind. And then there's another thing called relabeling where other people convince you that what happened to you wasn't consensual and it becomes easier or more uh, socially effective for you to agree with them. But in relabeling, they actually know they're lying. And in recovered memory syndrome or some sort of a psychotherapy issue that's going on with them, they actually do think what they're telling you is true. And I think, I think our problem right now is postmodernism that people are being told that there is no reality. And so, so reality and your ability to separate out how you're rewriting your own memories and your own subjective truth, subjective truth from actual truth is erasing, you know, the possibility for people that, that what they're remembering and how they're experiencing it years later is maybe not so accurate anymore. And lived experience is a big thing that people talk about these days. It doesn't matter what research says. Well, what about Mr. Manson's lived experience? Right? So, you know, and I've had a number of guys talk to me about this, where there's like, I agreed to have sex with somebody. And when I agreed to do that, it was consensual. And now they're telling me it wasn't consensual, but they didn't tell me that. I didn't agree to that. So how am I not being violated as the man? You know, where all of a sudden my consensual, you know, my understanding of the situation is being rewritten by somebody else. That's a violation of their lived experience of what happened. The main reason I find the idea of repressed memory and the other things you mentioned so chilling is that it's kind of a throwback to times when women were considered unreliable. And basically, women had no agency in a legal sense whatsoever because they were just deemed too dumb, too unintelligent to be even taken seriously or to reason rationally. It's like, is that what feminists want to go back to? Do, do they just want to prove that women are completely unable to account for their own actions, even to recall the actual events of their lives? It's, it's actually terrifying. Well, I've had a lot of experiences of men discounting what I say because I'm female. 
because I'm observably female. And uh, so, um, so is, I'm not going to say that there's nothing to the idea that women get discounted as being um, unreliable or, you know, I want to talk to the real boss or I want to talk to somebody smart or something like that. That does happen. But I can tell you that my response to it is to say, like, I recognize what's going on. And I say, all right, so what I want to tell you is this. You know, what I want to tell you is this, or this is the conversation we're going to have, or this is the information I have to convey to you. And by the time I'm finished, all of their predispositions usually disappear. They realize they're talking to an intelligent human being. And I don't, I am who I am today because I had to actually convince people I'm smart. And if I had to be three times better than any man at my job, this just means I'm three times better at my job. I don't see why that's a problem. I, I, I'm work obsessed, so I want to be the best at what I do. And if, if circumstances, because of my gender, cause me to have to be three times better than a man, I'm happy. It made me have to be better, and it made me a better person. And I'm better at what I do than any man. <laughs> I can say that now. There's a lot of really competent men. But like, I, I don't actually see a problem with it. There's a lot of people who have disabilities they have to work around right? Being, being female isn't a disability, but there are disadvantages to it. But also being male is a disadvantage, especially right now. You know, there, there's men in court who actually can't even make certain arguments because they're male, you know? And, uh, you know, a, a man who wants to talk about the Me Too movement, well, shut up. You know, if you try to even do that, you're going to get accused of something. You know what I mean? So, you know, Whatever it is you're born with and whatever it is you're trying to deal with, what you have to do is try to keep people focused on the things that matter. And the things that matter are not immutable characteristics. The things that matter about what's, what's in your head and can you articulate what you want to do and do you make sense? And, you know, the problem right now that I'm seeing is actually social media. That's the problem. You know, you know the problem with social media if I was to articulate this as best as possible right now, is that you and I are, are women. We grew up with other women. We know what they're like, right? We have no illusions about this whole, like, you know, women are beautiful and kind and loving and all this other shit. We grew up with them. We know what actually goes on. They are gossip mongers, they're vicious, and they have very unique ways of attacking people, whether it's another woman that they're competing against or whether it's a man. And they, um, it's like a, you know, was it my, my, my Greek wedding or something like that, whatever that maybe was. Said, um, you know, the man's the head of the house, but the woman's the neck. She can turn the head any way she wants to, right? That's the way women work. They're never identifiably the person that you can blame for it in, in the past. They found other ways to gain power when they were powerless. And, you know, so, so the way that women um, control people is um, it has to be identified because it goes against this victimhood narrative and it goes against the actual reality of, of where we live. I, I can't remember, I got caught up thinking about this whole Dahlia Depolito video that I did and all this other stuff, but, but you know what I mean? Like, we're not being honest. That's the problem is we're not being honest about power and how power works. So you look at Marilyn Manson dating Evan Rachel Wood and, and Blair you know, White said, well, he's 36 or something like that, and she's only 18, so therefore he had power. No, older men dating younger women, 
they have the power because they're beautiful and they're viable sexually, whereas older men are more vulnerable to them. So why can't we talk about reverse power dynamics and actually approach people as if they're individuals and look at every case as if, you know, these are, these are real people involved. Just because he's a celebrity, right, <laughs> doesn't mean that you can actually pretend that, um, that he's something other than what you imagine him to be. Well, you put his fucking poster on your wall and pretend you're, you're married to him. That's what people do with musicians. They put their, their posters on their walls and they pretend they're married and then they chase them and like Evan Rachel would get on their fucking tour bus and they pretend they have no agency. It's not real. You know, Twitter is not real. It's, it's distorting our view of how the real world works and how actual people think. And when I've made mistakes in my life, I've never benefited by blaming somebody else. I've always benefited and improved my life by figuring out how I contributed to that situation. Because if I contributed, I can change it from happening again. The point you brought up about power is, I think, very important. I don't believe women have ever been powerless, but that's a completely different conversation. I think women have always had a great deal of social influence and they were always good at pulling strings from the background. But again, that's just a different conversation. But another thing, I really dislike about contemporary feminism is that there's no admission of women's sexual power, as you're saying about the younger woman. So ironically, feminists who are supposedly wanting to liberate women from societal constraints, they still think of women as these fragile, innocent, virginal creatures who who are abused and led down the wrong path by this evil, beastly man. Who's ever hurt you more in your life? Who really, really cut to you and really caused damage? Because I can tell you in my life, the, most, the worst bosses I've ever had and the people who've harmed me the most have always been women. Yeah. They know how to hurt people, really hurt them, devastatingly bad. Men, they're, they're way more surface because they grow up, you have a problem, you know, you, you confront the person with it. Women, when they have a problem, they don't confront. They, they go plotting, they, they get devious and they figure out how to hurt you worse. I've had men tell me before, cause I was in the men's rights universe for a while. And you'd be like, oh, I've learned so much about women. I can totally handle this. And it was like, do not talk to that woman. Do not, because you won't know what she's doing until she's already done it. And they're just like, no, I'm really good. And every single time they come running to me saying, what the fuck just happened? Like, guys, women are way more devious and way more deceptive and better at hurting people than men ever have been. If a guy hits you, which they should never do, um, but if they do, at least they're hitting you and you can see it coming. And there are physical wounds, scars to prove it. You can bite back, put it that way. You can bite back. But when women bite, when women bite, you don't even know you've been bitten. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's no proof. If it's psychological manipulation, how, how do you prove it? It is a very diff difficult thing. But also, Me Too feminists are doing their best to hide this potential women have for manipulation. And I think one of, the, one of my favorite examples 
is that they have this problem with the femme fatale archetype, which I really admire. And Camille Paria talks a lot about the power of the femme fatale, which exactly represents this very unique feminine power, which just has no male counterpart. And that's exactly what it's about. You know, she's very sneaky and manipulative. In film noir, the femme fatale rarely has a weapon. It's usually her, her beauty that she uses as a weapon. And there's just something- The honey trap. That's what they've taken down a, a couple, you know, a couple of really big guys before who they could never catch through criminal, you know, investigations yeah. that took them down by the honey trap. Yeah. Okay, I, I'd just like to come back to the Marilyn Manson thing one last time and then I'd like to move on to something else. But because you mentioned the emails and how they might be significant one way, I, I just have a very uneasy feeling when I think about a group of women coming together with this collective goal to share, again, lived experience. So what do you think those meetings that they were inviting me to look like? I, I really wish I had participated, but it's too late now, obviously. So do you think there was active encouragement for them to reevaluate their past experiences? Well, I think it's to your credit that you didn't respond. And so, congratulations and feel good about that don't regret it um you know it's, it's great that you did save the emails so you could actually so you can't just say i did get an email you can actually show that you did get one like you, you actually did have that evidence at, at, at the least but i i think the problem is that there is a collective coordination between women because of the internet so the internet actually took the mean girl circuit from high school and put it on fucking steroids, okay? And they're just like, we can pwn this. This is our job. This is what we do. Back channel, DMs, all this other stuff. Like, you know, how did they even know to contact you? They, they She clearly, she has resources. She hired a PI to find figure out how to get as many complainants as possible. And so the thing is, if I make an accusation, I don't need anybody else to back me up. I'm telling the truth and I'll show you I'm telling the truth. And if I need other people to come and back me up on it, it makes me weaker. The fact that they know that they can avoid responsibility and accountability on their own accusations by attacking in volume undermines their credibility to me. I would rather, <laughs> I know my, my kid had a game called, would you rather, right? If I was going to, if I was going to actually engage and I've had, you know, like I said, I'm getting older. I've had a lot of shit happen in my life and there's a lot of people I could have gone and I could have charged for things, but why bother? My job is to grow and mature and to, to become a better person. And every time you decide, do I want to make it public that somebody did something to me? You have to decide a bunch of factors. One is, is it going to improve my life to pursue this? as a you know is it worth it and is that person actually the person they were at that moment or is it just something that some stupid shit that happened because of the circumstances at the time and if you don't think that person needs to go to fucking jail don't make a report please right you should only because that is the consequence of a criminal allegation you're talking about putting somebody in jail and if you don't think that person needs to go to jail you should actually consider that 
And jail is not like a timeout. I've seen this too, where, where women are being told, first of all, if you make an accusation, probably nothing will happen. So they don't have to worry about the consequences of doing it, the seriousness of it, right? <clears throat> if it is taken seriously, they might get charged, but they probably won't even go to trial. And if they do go to trial, they probably won't get convicted. I can tell you that is not true. There are a lot of women right now who've made an allegation and they get trapped into having to go to trial and testify when what they're saying isn't exactly true. But you can't back out of it. You get trapped into it. And, you know, and, and they never even thought it was going to go that far. And they sometimes hire a lawyer. We've had a mul multiple calls at the law firm where I work uh, from women who are trying to help get charges withdrawn because they called 911 when they were just pissed off. And, and now they can't have the charges withdrawn because of the policies in place. Like it's just, our, our world is going crazy. And um, this whole nonsense about how women are taken seriously is, uh, it is nonsense. They are absolutely taken seriously. But um, there's also a, an incentive to join into things like the Me Too movement when it starts up. So I, I was talking to one woman who who was a groupie and had actually gone off and had sex with a, a musician and she said when the me too movement hit she wanted to tell a me too story and say i was abused by this person and then you know she just went to hit publish and then she realized that's not true i actually pursued that guy but she was so keen to to be a part of this movement and to have her own story because there's a lot of pressure on women to to say you know you've been sexually assaulted and i hate that i mean i know you said in your video that you've been assaulted before so you can't be because the first thing that happens when you speak out against this is well i hope you get raped sometime and that comes from women right saying i hope you get raped so you know what it feels like so then you feel like you have to say you know what i actually have been before and i don't ever want to start a video saying as a person who's been raped because you don't you know it doesn't matter you have to be as a person who's using my logical fucking brain to think about the realities of what we're dealing with and the consequences of what you're saying and the fact that this isn't just a person you know who who is a figment of your imagination because you met them for a fucking weekend and you don't really know who they are and have no attachment to what their own life was like and what they might have been going through at the time and why things played out in the way they did that you can just say, my lived experience, to tie back to the expression you used earlier, my lived experience means you should go to jail because it'll make me feel fucking better. I'm sorry, I'm swearing. <laughs> but, you know, now when I'm working more and more, like for the last seven years, I've been, I've been working with people who are wrongfully convicted. I help with cases going to trial, but I also help with, with, with uh, appeals of wrongful convictions. And once you get to that point, there's almost nothing we can do because now it's not about the actual truth of a case. When once somebody's convicted and you're in appeal, they only look at, is there an error of law, right? It has nothing to do, and they, they won't even look at the facts of the case. An appeal is not a retrial. They don't look at the facts of the case. You know, if somebody gets wrongfully convicted because a judge had a bad day or you know, they had a jury who got deceived by some sort of, you know, misrepresented evidence by the prosecutor or some compelling argument that was made in closing submissions. The chance of overturning a wrongful conviction is really slim. And 
we no longer live in a society that cares about wrongful convictions. I can tell you that for a fact, working in law, we don't. So, you know, I agree with you that the, it's a problem when you go on social media and you try people without a proper trial. But I can also tell you that you know, the bigger problem now is when you actually have a proper trial and you're facing incarceration, they're not getting fair trials because of the social media activism right now, fueled by this, these celebrity allegations. Once you've been convicted in the court of public opinion, it's a reasonable thing to ask whether you can still have a fair trial. And I'm sure that's true for everyday people too, not necessarily famous people, but in a high profile case like that, can this person still actually have a fair trial when people have already made, everyone has already made up their minds about it? Well, in the multiple allegations as well, like, you know, it's deemed that everybody's independent, but there's an actual thing in court where you have to bring similar fact evidence applications. And they've been really lenient and I think um, incompetent in their decisions down in the States on this with the Harvey Weinstein trial and how many accusers they're allowed to come in in the Bill Cosby trial. You know, how many people who he's not charged with having assaulted are allowed to testify and uh, these things too, because they're going with that principle. There's power in numbers. But what you've shown with the email, just simply getting other people to go along with it, well, there's a celebrity culture too. I mean, you have Evan Rachel Wood in your inbox saying, would you like to be a part of something called the Phoenix Project? Well, gosh, who wouldn't? Right? Let me know how I can get my name in the news. Let me know how I can be famous. So, you know, there, there, there's all kinds of rewards for this. And, and the reality is, is that, especially because a lot of these allegations are historical, if something didn't go right in your life and you can have somebody else to blame for it, why wouldn't you do that? What feminism was trying to do is teach women how to not blame other people for their problems. This is a big question that I think that you're doing a great job addressing this. This is why I'm chatting with you right now is like, I love the message you're putting out is like, we need to really revisit what is, what is feminism? What is strength as a female person? How do we actually, actually engage in, in agency as women to stop blaming other people for our problems? You know, if you want to compete with men who, you know, to be honest, men know they have to work until the day they die, you know, or they have to, you know, they have to work and, and provide for people. They have no other option. When women choose a career, they, they actually choose it. We get to choose whether or not we're going to be professionals. And if we don't want to do that, we can find a guy who we can marry who will pay all, all our bills for us. And if we have a career and then we get tired of it, you know, we can just quit whenever we want. But men don't have that option. Men have a different life. And women act so fucking oppressed all the time as if, you know, we're hard done by because we have to give birth. Well, if it was so hard, why do we do it more than once? Why do women ever have more than one baby? It's not actually that bad. It makes you grow stronger. And that's a, an interesting thing with the cuddling of the American mind book by, um, I can't remember, Hate and somebody else. Yeah, Jonathan. Um, 
yeah, what doesn't kill you, people are now being told makes you work weaker. And that is, that is the problem that's going on right now is everybody is being encouraged to think that, that anxiety and stress and bad things that happen to you in your life make you weaker. And that's some sort of a strength to be weak. And that's one of the things that you were saying in your video that, that I think is really important is that we have to remember that you don't get to be a good person and a strong person. And, you know, obviously you will never become a wise person if you don't learn from the, the mistakes you make. You can't blame it on other people or you will never be wise. And, and if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to take responsibility and agency and figure out how to learn from your mistakes, I will never respect your opinion. We'll never respect your opinion. You will never be wise. But all of us hopefully get old one day. If I was the kind of person who at 80 years old had to look back and figure out and count on my fingers how many people I blamed for all my mistakes, I would have nothing to offer this world. We have to, we have to consider our values on what it means to actually survive every year. What does it mean to be a survivor? Right? Survivor is like just a label where you, you get to make a claim to something, but you also don't survive it. So people who call themselves survivors are actually saying, I'll never heal. So how are you a survivor? These all these conundrums. And one way or another, you know, we have all survived things. So the word survivor is another one that I have a problem with. Because who gets to decide what experience is more legit or valid or more traumatic than another? Who gets to call themselves a survivor? Who, who doesn't? But just talking in a bit more general terms, I just wanted to ask you, in, in legal, actual legal cases where a woman talks in these very passive terms and appears to take no responsibility for her actions whatsoever, but based on the stories she tells, she did make certain decisions. How would you approach a case like that? Or how would courts approach a case like that? Like, is it even acceptable to ask that woman whether she considered the fact that she could have done certain things to avoid that situation or that she might have willfully got herself in a particular situation? Can you even ask that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that, that actually happen in the legal system. So the first thing is that um, complainants are actually called victims prior to conviction. So they're treated as victims and they're given um, advocacy group access. So the groups that they're, um, that they're given as support headed into a trial, um, meet with them and explain to them how to testify in court. I can say this for a fact because complainants more and more are using specific phrases and they're justifying behavior using the exact same phrases. And I've also seen these support group workers um, convening with the prosecutor and advising the prosecutor on how to counter some of the defense arguments as the trial proceeds. So this is not an actual investigation where a complainant is left on her own in the trial system. They have people whispering in their ears all the time, telling them how to improve their testimony. And also, Police are being told not to ask complainants too many questions because they don't want to, they know it has to be disclosed to the defense. So they're trying to prevent the defense from getting too much evidence to work with going into the trial. 
we, it, it's all being catered to try and obtain the most convictions possible with no respect for the truth whatsoever. So um, how this plays out in the legal arena, unfortunately, is um, being reverse engineered. They're looking at why do people get acquitted? Why did the judge say, say they didn't have enough evidence? And then they figure out, they work from those reasons and they try to create this junk science in order to re-educate judges to, to not convict for those reasons. So you figure out how can people get acquitted and then how can we prevent that from happening? And then let's call it science and let's say it's based on neuroscience and then let's educate the judges on this so they have no ability to convict. So for example, we had a, an acquittal that we achieved just in the, in the last couple of weeks where a paragraph was inserted at the end of the verdict saying, I just want to tell the complainant, because I didn't acquit doesn't mean I found him not guilty. No, actually it does. Technically it does. But this judge was, you know, was, was wanting to, to be apologetic to the complainant. That's how bad the legal system got. So how is this different from social media? The only thing with social media right now is you don't literally go to jail. But on the other hand, if they cut off your ability to be employed and they cut off your ability to communicate with any of your friends because they're afraid to be associated with you, it can actually be worse than prison. There was an article that I got a link to actually just either today or yesterday from a lawyer who was talking about how one of his clients killed himself because although he wasn't being held in jail pending his trial, he was released with the conditions that were so restrictive, the guy couldn't live. He couldn't have access to the internet. And then he also couldn't have a device that had access to an internet. So he couldn't have a computer, which obviously would have access. Um, so even if he didn't have a signal coming in, he couldn't have a device that was capable of connecting to the internet. In the world of the pandemic, in COVID, right, where you can't even visit friends and family. Why, the guy how, how did they justify that? Well, they don't have to because the guy killed himself. So, you know, I see and I, and I talk to a number of people who've been canceled online and, and they're devastated because they had a life and all of a sudden their identity gets stolen overnight by a complainant who is the only one who's permitted to be listened to. They steal your, they literally steal your identity overnight and all of your friends are afraid to talk to you. And so they're isolated and they can fall into a legitimate, not a, not a distorted depression, but a legitimate depression and lose hope in life and kill themselves. And you know what happens then? Because I did a video on this called Death in the Vancouver Nightlife. What happens then is the accusers online say, good, one less rapist in the world. If you kill yourself because you're falsely accused and you have no, no ability to, to try and figure out how to save your life again, your act of committing suicide will be seen as an admission of guilt. That's how sick our society is right now. What are the chances a falsely accused person can actually get justice and not only be acquitted, but clear his name completely? The chances are, are almost nothing. Like, so there's a great book called so, you, um, so You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. He's a British author. And um, he looked at, and I know a number of people, I always recommend this to everybody I talk to. Read this if you've been, you know, named and shamed on, on mainstream media or even just in social media. So you've been publicly shamed. The people who actually got through it the best were the people who came out instantly fighting. 
and not just apologetic, saying, you know, instantly responding, right? Come on going, how fucking dare you? How fucking dare you do this? That's kind of what my personality is like. If somebody falsely accuses me of something, uh, I'm one fighting bitch, right? <laughs> like, and, and so if you, if you hesitate at all, as soon as you hesitate, you're lost, right? And so that's one of the things. You have to come out fighting from the beginning. But um, how do you get a fair, uh, a fair trial? I mean, one of the, there's so many problems because if you're accused on social media, that's one thing. But if they also then, if you challenge them on social media and they say, fuck you, I'm going to go to the police, now you have to deal with, you've now been accused and you have to show up in court and you're going to have to hire a lawyer. And it's expensive, right? What do you do if you clear your name and get acquitted? I can tell you that a civil suit, a defamation suit, is at least twice as expensive as defending yourself in criminal court. So if you manage to prove your innocence in court, then you can think about trying to sue somebody for defamation, but they're absolutely going to claim truth. Be like, well, that was on a balance of, uh, you know, the burden of proof, but I'm still maintaining I was sexually assaulted. So now you're going to get tried again in, on, a, on a balance of probabilities on a civil court standard. And, um, and because you're the one claiming defamation, the burden of proof is now on you to prove that she's lying. So if you, if you get through the entire thing, and then, and then you start a civil suit, which usually will take longer than a criminal case. Now, you, now you're not going to move on with your life. You're going to go in for like, you know, 3.0, not just 2.0, but 3.0. And, and you're going to have to pay a shit ton more money. And you, you might end up being found responsible on a balance of probabilities. So is there justice in the world? No. I've only had two cases where I've had a false complainant successfully charged with lying. Only two in seven years. If a falsely accused person is acquitted in court, that doesn't automatically mean that his accuser will, will be charged with making a false accusation, right? It's a whole other process. No, I've, I've gone in after a guy was put through two different trials because there was the current allegations and she went back and made a second complaint. And they charged him and made him go through a separate trial for historic allegations. We went in after he, he was cleared and acquitted of both. And in fact, in the second trial, the prosecutor ended up recommending acquittal because she realized that the, the complaint was so full of shit. We went into the police the next day with all of her evidence that the woman had committed perjury, fabricated allegations, and by her own police statement, admitted to sexually assaulting the guy herself. And they refused to do anything. And he ended up being threatened that he would basically be, the police would start you know, paying more attention to him in, in his city where he lived if he didn't just walk away. Nothing will happen. What does it actually take for a person to be convicted for making a false accusation because i understand it's not even enough for them to admit it but there has to be corroboration too right so that's an interesting conundrum to get a conviction there's no corroboration required but to prove that you were falsely accused her confession requires corroboration that's how crazy it is this doesn't make any sense. And is I know. 
Is that only in the Canadian legal system or? No. Is it the same in the US and in the UK? Yeah, that, that requirement that a confession requires corroboration comes from um, US studies on false accusations. And then people talking about why these are problematic. Problematic. No, it's like the, the problem, you know, like the reason I love the law is that the law is based on logic. And so this is why I was always attracted to the law. You know, not only do you have to be logical in court, but your logic should apply to every situation that's foreseeable. That's how tight your logic has to be. That's why I love it because I live on, you know, I live in my mind. I am my brain. That is it. I was like, I don't care about anything else in my life. I never, I hardly ever leave my house because all I care about is thinking, right? So this is why I'm attracted to law. And uh, so, so that should be true, but it's no longer true anymore. It's like, we're just, um, everything has gone into this, this, um, you know, postmodernist idea that, that reality is malleable. And so what they did is they corrupted the law by changing the meaning of equality. This is why I always say feminism is about equality. They're about changing what equality means. They've changed it to a thing called substantive equality. And they've also got postmodernist feminist legal theory where they've been trying to inject that into the law and it's working. That we've now got activist judges who don't just use erasers to say this thing was unconstitutional. They'll actually reinterpret the law to make it mean something different now. And we're, we're just living in this bizarro world that, you know, since for the last seven years, people have said to me, how bad is it going to get before we recognize what's going on and fix it? And the answer, unfortunately, is it's going to get really bad. Like, you know, we look back on the witch trials and, uh, you know, Salem is just one of them. We look back on these times and all the things in, our, in the human history that have been terrible and I'm wondering, why do we even teach history? Because we're not learning from it. We're not learning. And I can tell you right now, we've already gone past how bad I thought it had to get before things would change. We've already gone past that point. So I cannot predict how bad it's going to get before we turn around. What we have to count on is good people who care about actual logic, actual meaning behind our institutions, upholding those institutions, and saying, I don't care about how many people like me on Twitter. I care about the rule of law. That's what we have to start, you know, watching for and encouraging people to do. And, and I know from, from, from working more and more with lawyers and getting to know a few judges and stuff like that, they actually do want to say something. But they have to know that they're not going to get thrown off the bench because they're saying something unpopular. There's no judicial, I don't even think there's judicial independence left anymore. Everyone's afraid of fucking Twitter. That's the world we live in. Sorry to swear, but I'm off the record right now, so. <laughs> so what do you think it would take to bring about some actual reforms to the legal system? Well, I think that there's the greater public body who um, is afraid to say anything on Twitter, but they're actually the majority. Like, look at Louis C.K., who was unpersoned, and then he went out and he did comedy, and he's fucking great, and people wanted to hear him, and people laughed. And so he just went out and did it, and, 
you know, people like Joe Rogan who are being, uh, you know, they, they try to cancel him all the time, but they, he's more popular than the people trying to cancel him. So we just have to create like um, a voice or a network somehow for the actual majority of people to start saying, yeah, I'm worried about this and find a way to communicate. And, and also the news they're getting, um, like, you know, when something, I can tell you when there's a decision in court, most of the news outlets don't actually report what what really happened in court and the decisions are difficult to read like so how are you going to have faith in the justice system when nobody's telling you what actually happened in the justice system and why right so we have the ability to communicate but also most of the people doing that and networking like this is one of the things I like about Joe Rogan. He's got Jamie who can fact check him all the time, right? He's <laughs> like, we need people fact checking themselves all the time. And actually like, I make mistakes too. Like I've been doing, I had a YouTube channel or I have one still actually, although I rarely maintain it. Um, and I, I made a transition from a point of being a men's rights activist to being a civil rights activist, to being a, just an advocate for the falsely accused and now working for a law firm. People move and change, and we, we can't be blamed for that. We should encourage it. And it's so dangerous right now for anybody to be wrong about anything on the internet. It's, it's dangerous to even say anything on the internet right now because somebody's gonna find it and twist it and turn it into something else. So, so I think that's one of the things we need to, to start thinking about is how do we defend people and, and make it, um, easier for people to, to to actually talk about um you know their impressions of things or or, or speak out publicly and, and try to correct you know the 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 advocacy i mean if somebody's swinging a hammer around he wants to get in the path of that hammer right <laughs> so but there, there has to be a way to to fight back because like you know if we think about just about twitter most of those hammer swingers have blue check marks and you're likely to get deleted well they're likely to get amplified so you know but the same people who are swinging those hammers are talking about power differentials as if they're the powerless people they're defending the powerless people while attacking the people who have less power it's 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 just so bizarre so um you know but then of course we we have problems where you get platforms who try to compete with twitter and try to create other um networks with, you know for for people to use and then you know we've got these like institutions now that are unaccountable as like the government are who can just shut down your paypal account and you know i don't want to be too depressing but you know <laughs> and I'm, I'm definitely not fatalist i have a lot of optimism because you know we, we've faced these problems in the past and we find ways around it but the problem is right now that um that we have to really be strong about talking about how to problem solve and identifying who it is who's who's um um engaging in this cancel culture and cutting off voices and find a way to coordinate effectively and not just sporadically or not just um you know based on some sort of funny meme because the best way to fight all this bullshit is to be funnier than they are and it's very easy to be funnier than they are because cancel culture people and social justice warriors have zero level of, of actual humor it's very rare to find any legitimate humor whatsoever so but then it's all classified as memes and stuff but um 
but we have to find a way to organize it and you know probably seem a little bit more frenetic or frantic than you know as opposed to like a person i work in the legal system so i've got all the answers i don't have the answers all i can tell you is i'm trying and that's the thing is we can't give up trying i wanted to talk a little bit about woody allen why do you think that story keeps coming back to the spotlight it's been decades now um, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, Ronan Farrell. That's why he keeps coming back. Because Ronan Farrell has um, got a lot of pull in the media and a lot of connections uh, to, to make sure that the Woody Allen story doesn't die. And this is one of the reasons that you know I believe, and, and there's been a, a couple of reports on it, why he was so keen to be the takedown person for, for um, Harvey Weinstein is that Harvey actually gave Woody Allen a path back to, to movie making again. Do you, you know what I mean? So, so Woody Allen was kind of isolated a little bit, and then, um, and then Harvey Weinstein actually promoted and, and uh, produced one of his films, and, and then Woody Allen got back into filmmaking again. So Ronan had actually had a vendetta against Harvey, <laughs> and that's why he wanted to be a big part of that takedown. And um, he's... You know, the, the New York Times or the New York Post, one of the two, um, Ben Smith, I think his name was, did a really great um, expose on how corrupt Ronan Farrow's reporting is. And that he just, he, he's, he's a great storyteller. Unfortunately, his stories aren't completely based in fact, right? And so, so um, and, and also he's very attractive. Although, you know, I would, I've never said this before, nobody's even looked into it, but Ronan Farrow is a gay man. And I, I know from, we all know from my Lianopolis, there's a lot of shit that goes on in the gay community. I would really love to see um, people from Ronan Farrow's past explain exactly some of the things he did that weren't exactly politically correct or proper sexually, because there's a lot of, you know, this whole communicated consent, you know, active, ongoing, enthusiastic consent never happens in the gay community. Are you kidding me? They just grab and touch and do all this other shit. There's got to be a shit ton of people in his past who can come out and report on him. I'm just sorry. I'm, I'm platforming on this. Please come contact me. If you have a story about Ronan Farrell, please let me know because I know he's probably guilty as fuck, but he's this big takedown artist right now going after all these people and he's got so much clout. That's why Woody Allen is back in the news again, because Ronan Farrell will not let it die. And everybody knows that Dylan Farrell is either currently lying and knows it, or her mother convinced her that this happened to her. And if her mother convinced her this happened to her, then Mia Farrow is actually guilty of sexual assault. That's a, I know this is a, I'm going to actually expand on that point for a moment. If a parent falsely implants the memory of sexual assault, their child will believe it happened and will live as if it did happen. And the, the, the parent who implants a false memory should be considered guilty of sexual assault as far as I'm concerned. It's parental alienation and it's, it, it's, it's so rampant right now that parents get away with doing this stuff. They're, they're, you know, I'm, I'm not keen on advancing and expanding the definition of sexual assault, but there's got to be some sort of a crime that's created for that. If you can prove that, that a false memory was planted or a child was convinced something happened to them that didn't happen, that's abuse. And it has to be 
dealt with. And, and that's clearly, everybody knows that's what happened with Dylan Farrow. And the only thing that people really had a problem with, with Woody Allen, was the fact that he married Mia's child. And that problem, yeah, it seems really icky. And I, that's, that's the main thing that I remember reading when it all happens. And the thing was that you had to understand she was 19 years old before he ever actually spent any meaningful time with her whatsoever. And it was never his child. And um, she was having trouble or whatever. And it's like, oh, would he take her out for, you know, to a basketball game or something like that? And they started hanging out and she was being abused by Mia Farrow at the time, if you believe Moses, right? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, and I, I did a podcast with uh, Bettina Arndt and uh, Janice Famenko about the subject of Woody Allen and looking at all of the stuff because Moses Farrow has spoken out twice now. And Moses is, um, you know, the older brother of Dylan and he was there all the time. He was actually always the crisis management person. And he was actually, he says, I know that I, the, that I observed the things I did because I had to. Like he was saying, you know, when, when Mia wasn't around, he had to report back to her about everything that happened. And he talked about his own, like being beaten by Mia himself, right? And, uh, you know, and so he, he gave a very articulate and, meaningful account of how the abuse could never have happened one the attic that she talks about was not habitable like you couldn't walk into it and there was no train set there so it's fucking bullshit absolutely fucking bullshit so how can something so obviously a lie still be an issue that's being dealt with i haven't watched the documentary i'm going to though probably <laughs> but you know the way it's happening and the way a lot of this shit is happening is people like ron farrell who has a vendetta and an anger against his father, who he actually would probably prefer was Frank Sinatra, right? Doesn't even want Woody to be his own father. He just hates his dad. And I, I actually dated somebody who hated his dad that much before, so I know how vicious it is. <laughs> and, and, but he's got the power to, to destroy lives. And he's not just taking it out on his own father, Woody Allen, he's taking it out on a bunch of other people too. And he needs to be sh shut down because there's journalism and then there's, corrupt people who are attacking people with lies. Ronan Farrow, I think, I think it's Ben Smith, something Smith, who, who did a takedown on him. If I could actually use my glasses to, to search the internet, I'd find out the name for you right now. Um, but no, he's, he, you know, he needs to be stopped. And other people, if he's not stopped, other people are gonna do what he's doing in order to get famous like Ronan Farrow. And then they don't care how many people die or kill themselves as a result of, of their their advocacy and their activism because all they care about is getting published that's what they care about we've got dystopian novels written about it this is the world we're living in right now how bad is it gonna get it's gonna get really bad you know what we need to fix this a good marilyn manson song that's what we need what really baffles me about the woody allen story is that no one talks about all the shady stuff around Mia Farrow. So several of her children accused her of abuse. A lot of them, like three of them died really young. One of them committed suicide. Something clearly wasn't right in that household. But how come no one seems to ask those questions or even point these facts out? I would say because of Ronan Farrow. It's not about what the truth is anymore in our world. It's about who you know. 
Are people afraid to talk about the side of... Well, they're afraid of Ronan Farrow. That's why. It's all about Ronan Farrow. <laughs> really. Like, who cares about Mia anymore? She's an aged actress, right? Who adopted 17 fucking children because she's a lunatic. That's stupid in the first place. Everybody knows, they ought to know she's crazy in the first place. You know what would have happened if it wasn't Mia Farrow, if it had happened like a decade earlier or something, you'd have a movie called Mummy Dearest, where the, where the, the actress is beating her child with a, a hanger. She did that. That's, that's what was going on with Mia Farrow. And while she was doing that, she kept adopting more children. Read Moses Farrow. He's got no reason to lie. Right? And she clearly treated her biological children more favorably than the adopted ones. There was this girl, the girl who died, died of age-related complications, who was actually, she said she was like a housekeeper. She was yeah. forced. Well, then there's the son who shot himself just like a block away from her house, when he had no reason to be a block away from her house when he, when he did that. And, uh, you know, they tried to deny that he shot himself for a while. And then there's the kid who, uh, you know, had you know killed herself by taking drugs or whatever and they tried to say that uh it was some other thing that killed her and you know like i can't say who's telling the truth or not i can all i can tell you is that i've read all the accounts and that moses farrow's account seems the most accurate and there's a, a massive problem with ronan farrow when he's not willing to address what moses is talking about in a meaningful way and Dylan, well, she's just trying to be famous and she's trying to be cute. She's trying to be the next Mia Farrow or whatever. She'll never, she's clearly not going to follow in her mom's footsteps. And she should just give up public life as far as I'm concerned, because she's useless. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I'm just going off the cuff right now. It's like all these people, I hate liars and frauds. I really do. And, and I don't think that, that Dylan is, is seriously misled. I think she knows she's lying. So the question is, how many of Marilyn Manson's accusers know they're lying? What about the one who was saying, he held a gun to my head? I don't doubt that he did. I don't doubt that he did that. But the way she cried when she was talking about, I felt so helpless. <laughs> like, seriously, if she thought that he was going to actually shoot her, you, you know, I'm not even going to doubt that he held a real gun to her head. If he thought that she was going to shoot her, the moment she actually got out of there without dying, why didn't she go to the police? Because it's not like, because I wanted to have sex with them again, or something like that, or because I was in a relationship. <laughs> I think it was either a makeup artist or a stylist, something like that. So that was their only encounter on that photo shoot. And apparently the first time he said hi to her, he had his gun to her head. But several people have pointed out that it must have been a fake gun because of the way she described it. Yeah, well, I mean, live dangerously, right? <laughs> I mean, but no, I mean, I say that not just saying, like, making fun of her. Like, I say that as a person who actually did some fucked up stupid shit in my past. And, and it was glorious. It was fun. I enjoyed it. So that's the part of me. It's like, I'm just like, you're hanging out with Marilyn fucking Manson. And he pulls out a gun. She was probably laughing her ass off. And then maybe he did. Let's like, I don't even care if it was a real gun. He points at your head at one point. It's like, yeah, okay. So you've chosen to hang out with a guy and do some fucking psycho shit. Maybe take some drugs. And you probably did some stupid shit yourself that night. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but the only thing you want to point is the one moment where it's like, okay, so I remember being high on acid 
when I was a teenager, which is a long time ago now. Um, and uh, my friend and I were both with, the, you know, with our two boyfriends and um, they started playing the end by the doors. And they said, I just wanna let you know, we have a pact. At the end of this song, we're gonna kill ourselves and we're gonna kill you too. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Cause I knew they were, they were full of shit. Right? <laughs> and then I was thinking also if I'm wrong, well, I only have a second to regret my, my bad decision-making, right? <laughs> like whatever. And so, but my, my other friend who was with us, she actually believed they were gonna kill us. And so she was, apparently I found out later, she was panicking the whole time. But I'm just like dancing around to the doors, right? <laughs> <laughs> going, all right, let's do it. Because I knew they were full of shit. And of course I didn't die, right? Um, so can I now go back and say, I was in a relationship with a guy who threatened to kill me one night and he could have done it. And that's how, you know, that's how abused I was. And then I continued dating him. And, and then like Evan and Rachel Woods, we broke up a couple of times, but we kept on getting back together again. And then a bunch of other weird shit happened, but it's all his fault. I mean, so I think she forgets that, that people unlike her have done similar things to her and know that it's a little more complicated, right? <laughs> what do we gain by believing her that she had no agency? And then when she got on his tour bus, that he was actually grooming her. And so, so she somehow, through his music, had psychologically infected her brain to make her get on the tour bus. And that that's not just her being enamored with some guy and being vulnerable to him, right? That's one thing. No, she says groomed, right? So of his millions of followers, she was the only one being groomed. That was her. It was all of that stuff that caused her to get on the tour bus. It was all aimed at her because he targeted her before he even knew who she fucking was. I'm being a bit more loose with my, my you know, vocabulary right now because I get really angry about this, having worked in the, in the film industry. Oh yeah, you actress, you could have been on any movie and you could have pursued a bunch of other filmmakers, but um, maybe you were groomed by this Oompa Loompa who used to be our uh, producer who you decided to go into the Elvis mobile, a trailer that was actually on the lot and visibly fuck him in that trailer and then walk out like, cause you knew we all knew that what you were doing, right? But you can pretend you were groomed. And every time she or somebody else did that, that producer lost respect for women. And then they end up being Harvey Weinstein. And then we blame only Harvey Weinstein for thinking that all women want to fuck him, when in fact what was going on was he lost respect over the years for women because so many women asked to fuck him just to get a job. So where's the agency in there? How do we stop something from happening when we don't stop our own contributions to that exact same thing happening? That's one of the messages you had in your video, which I think is so important. I'd like to finish on a bit of a positive note. So. To I know, how do we get positive now from here? <laughs> well, are there any positive stories you could share from your own advocacy work of a particular person who was acquitted, like anything positive you could share? Well, I think that um, one of the problems with like every positive story is that there's still a sense of injustice. So, 
every case I've worked on so far directly worked on, um, you know, at trial, because I, I do help with post-conviction cases, so I can't account for those. But every case that I've, I've helped with going into, into trial and directly helped with, you know, we've had an acquittal. And of course, those are cases where the guy was falsely accused. So your chance of acquittal is higher when you're being falsely accused. Um, so th th there is hope, but you know, at the same time, it's scary because wrongful convictions can happen and do happen quite often. So um, what, I, what I think is really important right now, and I think the best way to, to kind of finish on a positive note is to encourage people because I get contacted by people all the time who say, I'm not, you know, they're not accused themselves or going through trial, but it's like, I know somebody or I've seen a friend and I know what's going on is wrong. So I, I'm happy that they're contacting me and they're, and they're acknowledging that they're aware of it. What we need to do is find a safe way for them to speak out so that um, the minority of voices who are, are causing our, our justice system to go down the path of becoming just another zone like Twitter, right? where it's like hashtag believe. Hashtag believe is something that's actually being mentioned in our legal system. And so what we need is to, to empower the voices of people who know it's wrong but are afraid to speak up and find a way for them to safely speak up. And also let our judges know that we value their independence and we count on their independence. They are the gatekeepers of the rule of law and they cannot capitulate to Twitter. They cannot be affected by, you know, the... The, the blue check mark media members who are not neutral reporters anymore. They're all, you know, t t retweeting each other and amplifying each other in the news articles. And that is not justice. And we can't let them um, replace, you know, actual neutral rule of law because <clears throat> here's the conundrum. The justice system only exists if there's public faith in the justice system. If the public doesn't believe in the justice system, they have no power. So the, the, the justice system has to respond to what they believe is a lack of public faith. But the reason they think there's a lack of public faith is because only people who are being government paid to control Twitter, like seriously, they have advocacy groups who are like, you know, paid for under the status of Women Canada and all this other stuff where they get paid to go on Twitter all day long as their fucking job, okay? So they do not represent the actual voices of the majority of the Canadian public. We need to somehow empower people to realize that if they don't stand up for other people, that it's not just gonna come for that accused person, that Marilyn Manson being accused, whether it's right or wrong, or somebody else who they see on, on social media, it will come for them too. And I can guarantee you it'll come for you because the people who call me, the first thing they say is, I never thought this could happen to me. I only thought it happened to people who were guilty. So we have to, this is the, and, and as depressing as that sounds, it's a positive note. I want to empower people to say that if you don't speak out now, it will come for you next. You have to stand up for the rule of law. And what we're doing right now, this interview with you, which I don't do a lot of interviews with people, but there's something about you where I'm just like, no, I need to talk to you because, you know, I think the way you speak and the, and the message you're putting across is very powerful. And we need to amplify that. And we need to let people know that if they don't speak out, if they don't take that courage into their own hands, it will come for them or someone they love very, very soon. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a great, great conversation. Thank you for having me on.